I remember Greg Meeks and I were on a, on a bill, I think it was a bill on, uh, potatoes and food stands. We found ourselves both uh, in the same place on a snap issue related wow. to fresh potatoes. So we teamed up. I, know, I mean, which, it, for, yeah, for those exactly. Greg Meeks is a Democrat from New York. I mean, essentially New York City. African American Democrat out there by uh, JFK Airport and a great guy. If you want the system to work, that's part of the magic, right? Is you can't just automatically reject somebody because they don't look like you, think like you, or represent a district like you do, right? That's the biggest mistake you can make. Welcome to Article One, a show about lawmakers, legislating, and the politics that make Congress work. I'm your host, Molly Hooper, longtime Capitol Hill reporter, sharing with you my one-on-one conversations with Democrats and Republicans in the Senate, the House, behind the scenes, and on the trail. The voice you heard at the top of the show? That was Greg Walden, the top Republican on the House Energy and Commerce Committee. After serving for more than 20 years, Walden is leaving Congress at the end of this year. In those two decades, Mr. Walden has worn many hats, including head of the House GOP campaign arm and energy and commerce chairman. In our lengthy conversation, we discussed the administration's handling of the coronavirus pandemic, expanding broadband coverage, favorite parliamentary tools, and how to be an effective lawmaker. Hint, it may mean making allies in the Senate. Please, if you enjoy what you hear, share this podcast with a friend and leave a rating or review. Now, on to the conversation. We start off discussing the landmass of Oregon's 2nd District and the recent fires that ravaged parts of the state. How are you? Where are you? Good. Are you on the hill? Good, good. I'm in my basement in my office in Hood River, Oregon. Okay, so before we start, I just wanted to, um, it's like number six in the entire country. Is that true? Yeah, or seven. Yeah, it's like seventh. So it's bigger than the landmass of any state east of the Mississippi. Bigger than okay, gotcha. So Michigan, if you include the lake, is larger. Okay, but so my district is larger than the states of New York or Pennsylvania or Florida. It would stretch from the Atlantic Ocean to Ohio. I've heard that, and because I am, I want to talk about members of Congress and how they represent their districts. Just as a matter of practicality, how difficult was it to get around to all the various parts of your district when you go home each weekend? And and it's, I mean, there's yeah. kind of rough terrain as well. It's rural. There's forests. Yep. It's it's biologically yep. diverse, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> so I've made 642 round trips in 22 years. Great stat. From here to Washington and back. Um, that's like three... I think it's round, three round trips to the moon or something. My staff has kept track of all this. So it what what you do, Molly, is you, you end up, I figured out I never wanted to drive from here out to there and back. So we do loops. So it's like, think breakfast, lunch, dinner. Okay. So you'd be in one town in the morning, next town sort of midday, finish in the next one that night, maybe do a breakfast there the next day, drive on to the next one. And so basically, it'd be two and three day loops around the district. Well, I followed Kevin McCarthy around a while ago. Um, basically, I was sort of in the bubble. This is before he became the leader, of course. But I remember we were in his California district, which is down in Bakersfield, which is also a very uh, large land, you know, size wise district. And we started in one place, went out to the desert, 
had lunch mm-hmm. there, came back to the dish. I mean, it was a very, it was like a good almost 10 hour day he had starting early in the morning and just because oh, he yeah. was going out to reach everybody. And I think when constituents, when people who are watching all of the shows on the news, they hear that Congress is going home for recess. I don't think people realize how busy members are when they go home. It's almost like they're busier in their district than they are in Washington. Yeah, it, it's it's a different busy, but you're right. I was just trying to figure out how big his district is. Ooh, actually, you know what? I have look at I have my almanac of American politics right here. Let me see. Usually it pulls it right up. California twenty three. Mine is sixty nine thousand three hundred and forty one square miles. It, I, you can get different numbers, but that's the one that. And you have Crater Lake too, don't you? I do. Deepest freshwater lake in North America, second deepest in the world. I've been to Crater Lake. I mean, you look over the side and you don't want to go in. I mean, it's very deep. It's over 1,900 feet deep. So Lake Tahoe would be the second deepest. And then Lake Chelan in Washington State would be the third. Well, it's, it's fun to represent a district on the West Coast, speaking as a West Coaster. A native. Yeah. I mean, it, it's very different than the districts. There's interesting things to see. It is. It's, I mean, that beautiful things to see. I mean, there's a reason why a lot of people want to move to the West Coast or why they did move to the West Coast back in the day. Yeah. It's a very beautiful, resource-rich area. And if you don't maintain it, and this actually goes to something that you worked on in your early days in the house, like the forests. Right. If the forests aren't maintained, you can end up having terrible disasters, natural disasters that can ruin big parts of your district. Was your district uh, impacted by all these fires that have been happening? Very badly. We, and it was different. We, we were used to having the forest fires and the big rangeland fires. Okay. What was different this year, the devastating fire in, in my district was actually between a freeway and another highway. And there's a greenway that runs between them, a little creek. Okay. And then between the two are just huge, big mobile home parks and affordable housing. Oh, no. And it started at one end in in dry grass. Remember, we don't get any rain after the 4th of July. It just dries out here. And and so they had this really abnormal high wind, an east wind blowing 20 to 50 miles an hour. And a fire got started in grass. Oh, no. And it became a blowtorch, and it burned up. Over 2,300 housing units. Again, poorest of the poor, mostly low income. Most of them probably not insured. I don't know. Some were, some aren't. I mean, it's just, and it, I've, for miles, it's just devastated. I mean, you've seen the pictures like Paradise right. and all these fires in California. Well, that's what we had this year. We had other fires too in Oregon. Uh-huh. We had a fire in, in uh, Schrader's district that was spotting, starting new fires, okay. 15 miles in advance of itself. Oh, is it because the wind was carrying the sparks and the embers? Correct. And burning 2.77 acres per second. Whoa. Because the fire line was so long, it was a big, long fire line, and burning out. And they, they calculated it was burning about three acres a second uh, overall and spotting 15 miles ahead. Does that have to do with, okay, so I, I, w- I went to Cal in the Bay Area, in, in the Berkeley Hills. And we, the Berkeley Hills has had their fair share of fires and spotting and whatnot. 
But I remember being an undergrad and looking up at the hills when I was playing lacrosse, and there were all these goats yeah. eating all the underbrush. It was the yes, I mean, yeah, that's a good thing. Get the fuel loads down. Exactly. How much of these fires become these massive conflagrations because there hasn't been that control of the brush? So you have forests in the dry side of Oregon that the forest center at Oregon State University, Forest School of Forestry, estimates there are a thousand trees per acre where there should be a hundred. Oh my gosh. Because what we've done has been very effective at putting out fires for the last hundred years. Okay. But then we kind of quit managing the forest for the last 50. Various policies. Why? Uh, litigation, environmental policies, you know, don't cut trees, set it up as wilderness. You've seen all those wilderness bills that go through. Every one of those means you don't do anything again, including really fight a fire in a wilderness area. You're supposed to let it just burn. And again, like you're saying, you have those areas of spotting. It's not just burning there. Those of you who are listening, your district is in the eastern part of the state. So we're not talking about the west coast of Oregon, right. you know, Salishan, like all this, those beautiful places that we see on the coast that always appear foggy. Right. You, you are in the eastern part of the state that is more dry. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that that's very interesting. Okay. So Kevin McCarthy's district is a total of 9,898 square miles. Oh my gosh. And yours is 69 something. 69,341. 69,341. So it's like seven, six, seven times the size. Well, have you ever had reporters along for ride-alongs? Because that would be a very long trip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I had one from the Oregonian tail along with me for uh, about uh, two days and then finally gave up, went back to Portland. No, I just think it's fast. I love going on the ride-alongs because you get to meet the people who you lawmakers mm -hmm. represent. And again, I don't think people who are listening or who watch all these shows on MSNBC, Fox News, realize that each member of Congress represents a diverse community of constituents, whether they voted for you or not. Yep. And you have to help those people who were burned, you know, lost their homes. Right. So what has happened to those individuals who, who were impacted by the fire in your district? Well, a number of things. First, the, the administration's been very, very quick to respond. So every request by the local government goes up to the governor and then the governor to FEMA. And like the, the major declaration and disaster, the president has to approve. He did it in about 24 hours. Okay. Um, they had the head of FEMA, the administrator out last week. I was out with him on the ground. He went throughout Oregon. I was with him in my district. So he's been eyes on, on the problem. And, and so you've got different levels of support. You get sort of the emergency come shelter here in place at the fairgrounds. Right. Uh, we'll take care of everything until we figure this out. The next phase is, okay, we've got hotel rooms, we've got apartments that are available. So now we're getting in to figure that out. The, the third phase is then the cleanup, which they're in now, um, to go in and clean up all the rubble. But they got to figure out, are there hazardous materials there? And how do they get that out first? So they, they have a team that comes in and does that. Right. Then they have a team that will come in once they've removed the hazardous materials. Then they can do the bigger cleanup and, and get rid of all that. Then you begin sort of the, the rebuild, if you will. But uh, apparently about a third of these mobile home parks um, are in the floodplain now. And so they were okay when they were there. They're grandfathered, but they probably won't be able to come back. Oh, no. So that's an issue. Um, and then in this county, you had about, about a 1% occupancy rate. Low-income housing was a huge issue. That was before the fire, 1%. Wow. In 2018, they built about 400 housing units in Jackson County. 
we just lost in a 24-hour period, I'll say, 2,300 housing units. Wow. So there's no magic wand. There's nothing quick that happens here. But they've shut down the emergency shelter now. They found some type of housing for everybody. A lot of people have moved in with relatives. A lot of these were 55 and over mobile home parks. Um, so they found alternatives. Some are still in the hotels and other housing. So that's kind of where we are right now. So I've talked to a number of lawmakers already, including Abigail Spanberger, um, Don Bacon. <laughs> I'll ask you about yeah. that later. Um, uh, Francis Rooney. Who else is I talking to? Uh, Brindisi. You know, I'm talking to the Purple District yeah. folks, and I'm talking to the chairman. Yeah. And one thing that you just mentioned, affordable housing, seems to be an issue that is an issue for a lot of these members. You know, this is something, the lack of affordable housing in their districts is a big deal, right. as is the lack of access to rural broadband, which is a different matter. Right. What can, number one, the House do about that, that the Senate will approve, and that the president yeah. will sign? So there, there are a couple of things. You mentioned broadband. So literally in one of the communities I represent a few years ago, there was a fire. There's limited broadband connectivity. There are only so many they can have on the system. So some of these people got burned out. And when they went to rebuild, they were told, oh, I'm sorry, but we can't hook you up to broadband again because we've given that one to somebody else. So because there's limited capacity. Can you imagine that? All right. So that's a problem we've been working on. And that's because there aren't enough like fiber lines right. and just like the physical hardware yeah, it's to get a, out to these communities. Yeah. I mean, this was a, this was both a, a fire that brought it to light, but also a city manager in a neighboring town had to bring her laptop into another town. These are really remote, small towns in order to do the city's business because their internet was down. And when we left a round table we had in this town, John Day, Oregon, we had to pay with uh, cash to get gas because they couldn't process the credit card because the internet was down. And so, I mean, this is a problem anyway. Now compound it with a fire. Now somebody rebuilds and a year later it goes, okay, I'm ready to hook up. And they go, I'm sorry, we don't have a capacity. Right. And compound it with like coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't even get started on that. Which is its own mess. And and actually really shows the need for broadband, especially with schools in remote areas. and Oh, and, uh, and telehealth. The, the enormous um, leap forward for telehealth, especially in rural areas, is, is, is terrific. Too bad it took a a pandemic to get us there. Right. But hopefully going forward, um, we can keep some of these barriers uh, down that were otherwise in place, but got removed during the pandemic. And I've, I've talked to everybody in the administration about that. Um, and I think, I think we'll be able to, to, to uh, keep telehealth. Oh, good. Top of the that, list. That, that'll be good news to Dave Schweiker. Talk to him too. He's very into telehealth and he goes, it's those, it's those lobbyists that, you know, that don't want. Well, the, 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 they're, they're always uh, strong forces, aren't there? <laughs> now, the, the other thing we, we just passed in the House was uh, codifying what the FCC has already basically done. Okay. There was a situation where your house burns down. Mm hmm. And after a certain period of time, your landline phone number got reassigned. No, I'm kind of saying no for two reasons. One, that it was reassigned. And number two, who still has landlines? Well, there's 40% <laughs> of Americans. Yeah, but you're right. But can you imagine after everything else, you find out somebody has your phone number? So again, it's like the people that got burned out, go to put their landline back. And landline number, sorry, that got given away. What? 
And, and so anyway, there's a way to work through all that. The FCC stepped in and basically has said, we're not going to allow that. Um, and, I mean, there's a way they made a system that makes sense. Let's say that. Uh, and then we, we codified that. Uh, last week, I think we had that bill on the floor two weeks ago. Will the Senate do it? Because it seems like the Senate. Doesn't... I think. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I hope so. I mean. Here, here's a quick question for you. So you've been in the House for 22 years, and you've been a subcommittee chairman. You've been a rank and filer. You were you were the head of the NRCC. Um, you were a committee chairman. Um, you you were the head of the GOP transition team. Um, in 2010, I remember that very well. You've yep. been in the middle of like, and I always go back to the S-chip reauthorization conference committee negotiations behind closed doors in the basement of the Capitol. And you, you've accomplished a lot in your time in Washington, D.C. And I'm wondering what advice or what, what do you wish you knew as a freshman lawmaker that you've learned in those 22 years that would help you to be the most effective lawmaker for your constituents? I think it's, it's really go spend more time with your colleagues. Not that I didn't, but I, I think it's really important to do that. And colleagues on both sides of the aisle, get to know, get to know more members. It's hard, especially as a freshman, each one of these Capitol Hill offices is like its own small business. And you go vote, or you go to committee, then you come back to your small business, the door closes and you've got a set of meetings there uh, from your district. And that goes on every 20 minutes, 30 minutes, hour, whatever it is, paying upon the year. And then, boom, you get called out for more votes or you step out of the committee. There isn't, you have to really sort of force time onto your schedule, clear out other things so that you can figure a way to get to know other members and do it informally. Um, I've, I've started doing um, some dinners at my little house on the hill with other just members only. Uh, Republicans and Democrats. And, uh, but that was very recent. I have a little more time on my hands. I'm not running, but I wish I'd done more of that. Um, but you know, you're forced into doing fundraisers every night or, you know, you got something going on and they do. And so, you know, maybe COVID's allowed for that. Um, because all, none of that stuff goes on like it used to. That's interesting that you say that COVID has allowed for that for people to get to know each other a little bit better on the Hill, even though. You're doing, you know, you're having these remote hearings yeah. and you're, the voting is you're doing it in sections by people's last names, which I hear some people kind of massage that a little bit. Well, if you're down toward the bottom of the alphabet like I am and you show up toward the very end, you might be able to vote before you leave on the first of the next trip, right? Which, by the way, is more, they ought to do that anyway. For if, if you want to reduce the number of, of, of collisions of people coming and going. Why wouldn't you have the reverse alphabetical order since those people are already there, have them vote and work up the other way? But oh, no, I, not that I'm. Wait, I didn't even think about that. See, the head of a GOP transition team, you, you were good about those trains. And not that I'm just because I've been at the W's my entire life. At the end of the alphabet, the A's always go first. <laughs> you know, H's, well, you know, you're just kind of stuck in the middle anyway, but. <laughs> middle west, middle of the pack. It, it won't impact us either way, but that's a that's actually a very good point. Yeah, and then you would just reverse it the other way. I mean, it's not hard. The most important change I made was not uh, except on the go two things on the go away day, uh -huh. whatever day it is, Thursday or Friday, we're leaving. Um, other than that day, no votes on the house floor before one o'clock. Right. 
Because what would happen, you'd start your committees at 10 o'clock and then interrupt them with a vote. And the witnesses would sit there for an hour. It was a total waste of time. And I also figured members have lunch commitments, might be fundraising, might be constituents. They generally have commitments. So let them go take care of that. Have the votes in the afternoon. Right. And then everybody can plan. The other thing that I, I, I remember telling Speaker Boehner, like Boehner, if you want to really reduce the tension on the Hill, unless we're voting on a war resolution or something that can't wait, let us get out of here by 3 or 3.30 on the day we depart. Right. Because those of us on the West Coast, we, if we're not out by then, we lose our flights. And I got to tell you, every office was scrambling and had multiple reservations on that night or the next day. You didn't know if you could get back to your district to do the meetings you had planned. And, and so, I mean, everybody was just high tension. Am I getting drama? Am I going to get out of here or not? And, and when we, when we put that in place, then everybody could plan their lives and say, okay, on the go away day, Thursday, Friday, I don't care. At least I know I can get on that 515 flight to Portland. Exactly. And it worked. It worked. And, uh, yeah. Nurse Denny Hoyer told me 434 people like my scheduling idea better than his. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice when you're living in Maryland and all you have to do is. And- <laughs> And you got two trucks and drivers, you know. I'll take that. Because <laughs> they've got the security team as appropriate. That's <laughs> right. Um, what, what's your relationship like with Steny Hoyer? It's good. I'd say it's good. It's professional. You know, we even played hearts one night uh, this summer. Or, or I don't know. Maybe it was even last year. You know, It's been such a weird time warp. But exactly. Um, Fred Upton and I and Steny and somebody else. I, forgot who the other, I think the other person was a staff person. We were just killing time one night. Playing cards. We went over and played played a round of hearts. And, you know. Uh, but, no, I mean, uh, Steny's a pro. Steny's a pro. He really is. And he wants to do business. And But, you know, his constituents are different than mine. We understand that. But, but you said something very important there. You said he wants to do business. I bet. Because I went through and I looked at all your stats uh, on con- congress.gov. Did you know that 15 of the bills that you've sponsored in your congressional career have become law? 15 bills. Okay. Which is no mean feat. I mean, if, I, I've been looking, I even, I've looked at Joe Biden's and those are the ones you sponsored. And 48 of the bills you sponsored have passed the House. At least they've passed the House. Okay. And in terms of in terms of the inter- the bills that you have um, co-sponsored, you've co-sponsored a lot. Yeah. One hundred and forty-three of those bills have become law. Wow. And I know five hundred and sixty-one of those have passed at least one chamber. But this is the stat that I was particularly interested in. Oh. Ten of those bills have they failed in the House. Really. And these are bills that you co-sponsored. They, I think that there were a few, like, um, you know, constitutional amendments. Oh, yeah. You know, just yeah, throw a few yeah. of those in. But there were a few others, and I just thought, oh, that's so interesting. Okay, let's play this scenario out. I am a young member of Congress, eager to get in and, and really get some bills passed. And I'm going to come to Greg Walden and say, how do I go about getting my bills passed into law? What, what do I do? What do I need to do? Is this Schoolhouse Rock? Is that what we're... <laughs> it, it, yes. If we're not, I can come up with a song for it, but I don't know if I could fit in all the verses that have to do with get support from these people. Go, You know, you have to touch base with the leadership. I mean, what's the most important thing? Do I need to be from a purple district? No. Do I need to show my, my constituents that, you know, for political reasons that I'm able to accomplish big things? You know, what, 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 when, I'm, when you're Speaker of the House and you're on the leadership team, how do you decide which bills are going to the House floor because you don't want any failures. So I would say both sides make sure when they're in power 
mm-hmm. that their freshmen get bills, at least one bill passed. Okay. Just for that reason, that they want to be able to help them through, show, be able to have them go home and say, look, I got something done and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And both sides do that. Uh, so you're kind of helping the freshmen. By the time you're a sophomore, it's like, yeah, what was your name again? And you're on your own. Now they still work with you. Um, I, I would say it's, it's work with people, make it bipartisan, figure out the committee structure. What committee is the bill going to go to? Do you have an ally on that committee? Okay. Get to know the subcommittee chair who's going to determine whether it gets scheduled or not. Get to know the full committee chair. And, and I think the other piece is get to know counterparts in the Senate. If you want to make law, you need a partner in the Senate. And so the extent to which your home state senator, or maybe it's a neighboring state senator, depending upon the political landscape, right, um, could be an ally in this matter, whatever it is. I remember Greg Meeks and I were on a on a bill. I think it was a bill on uh, uh, potatoes and food stands. Why he? I know why he cared. I don't know why I cared. I don't remember. Other than we grow a lot of potatoes, but somehow we found ourselves both uh, in the same place on a SNAP issue related to fresh potatoes. Wow! So we teamed up. Which, yeah, exactly. And, I mean, for, the, for those listening, Greg Meeks is a Democrat from New York. I mean, essentially New York City. African-American Democrat out there by uh, JFK Airport and a great guy. If you want the system to work, that's part of the magic, right? Okay. Is you can't just automatically reject somebody because they don't look like you, think like you, or represent a district like you do, right? Right. That's the biggest mistake you can make. Open the cover on that book and see what's inside, right? So, so I mean, that's what I've found is there, I've, I've teamed up with members on both sides of the aisle to get things done. Um, it didn't mean we ever voted the same again, you know, but it didn't mean we had to be enemies, right? My district's different than Greg Meeks. Um, but, but we found things we could agree on and developed, I'd say, a pretty good friendship. We always threatened to come campaign for each other, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's actually the funny thing. That's how you can tell when members, you know, when members are friends. Like, don't let anybody know I said this about him because I don't want to hurt three election chances. Yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, it was interesting. Like, Mark Meadows, from, from what I saw, what I witnessed, and the stories both gentlemen told, Mark Meadows is good friends with Elijah Cummings. And that, I've heard that too. you know, you had this Republican from from North Carolina, the Freedom Caucus, and, and an African American chairman of, of Baltimore, you know, work, living and working Baltimore and representing Democrat, Baltimore Democrat, yeah. and they were good friends. And even though they didn't agree on vi- almost anything, you could even see their comedy, not comedy, haha, but comedy, right. um, on the the oversight panel when you know when former rep and Mark was one of them speakers at the memorial in the Capitol, as I recall. I think so, too. And that yeah. that says a lot because, you know, when people, when I talk to people outside of D.C., a lot of them say, I'm interested in politics, but nobody likes each other. Nobody gets along. Congress right. can't do anything. Everything's so partisan. People talk past one another. And I don't, to a certain extent, okay, that's sort of the optics of it. And that's the, that's the story being told by the the news outlets I wouldn't I don't want to say the mainstream media because there's there's a lot of members of the media as you know former radio guy but I think that there are stories of individuals who do work together and there's like there's lesser known victories that can happen right how has President Trump's presidency or his administration changed that equation at all has it changed that equation at all yeah it's a good question um, 
It's a, and it's a complicated answer, so I'll, I'll try and work through it. Um, a lot of people think that his style, whatever, means nobody works with him and, you know, he's out there on an island. And the truth of the matter is, uh, whether it was working on Right to Try, whether it was working on all the, all the work we did on opioids, the support, what became the Support Act, which took 60 bipartisan pieces of legislation and rolled them up into one. Wow. And that became law under my chairmanship. I mean, the administration was all on board with that. We worked very closely with them. And I mean, there have been a lot of those examples where look at criminal justice reform. It's Donald Trump that did that, working with, you know, African-Americans and others in the Congress who who said, look, we've been we, we've been treated unfairly here in the judicial system. Right. Working with Cory Booker and Hakeem Jeffries. Yeah, exactly. So so it, it's an odd situation where uh, sort of publicly, I think, um we have a different view than what really happens uh, private. I won't say totally privately. You've been there. You, you see it. You know, it's not that it's private, but that that message doesn't really, pardon me, really get out there as much. Because and and fundamentally, it's the it's the drama, the fight that gets the coverage. Of course, not where you actually work together and get something done. And so, uh, so I think there are history will write a chapter or two about the accomplishments of the Trump administration. I hope, um, as opposed to controversies. Well, and even talking to Francis Rooney, who, for the record, is still undecided as to whether he will support President Trump or Vice President Biden. He just doesn't know right now because he says, you know, there's a lot of things that the president has done that he agrees with. Right. And and there's a I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but, you know, when it comes to, say, regulations, on businesses right. and bringing more manufacturing back to the United States and or countries friendly to the United States Correct. and taking, you know, because that, that's another big issue getting, you know, you don't want to have a country like China and authoritative government in control of your manufacturing because that's that just if they decide we don't want to help you. We learned that lesson dramatically and um, with, with COVID with the supply chain for personal protective equipment. And how they behave by basically preventing uh, materials that were supposed to come here from leaving their shores. And they ramp things up, it appears, um, on production, knowing more than they let on to the world or to the WHO. And we paid the price in lives and, and treasure. You know, our economy got shut down more. You think about a lot of the reason we shut down the economy uh, with this novel coronavirus, we didn't understand it. We're still learning about it. It was because we thought uh, emergency rooms would get overloaded, and we would we had such a limited supply of PPE because supply chains run you know pretty tight. That sufficiency, uh, there was no big stockpile of this stuff. Nobody ever envisioned having a stockpile for the country for. For this, for, for face masks, masks and gowns and things. We've never encountered that before. We've always been able to ramp up and get it. But fundamentally, that's why elective procedures got shut down because we had to have enough gowns for emergency. And so, I mean, I, I think one of the biggest issues Congress needs to address in the upcoming session is supply chain vulnerability. And it's about manufacturing. It's about basics. It's about uh, telecommunications. It's about equipment we put on our power grid. What we need to look at that not only to get the adequate supply, but a trusted supply. 
depending upon what you're using. And that's, I think, the point that Francis Rooney was making, because I kept saying, oh, you got to make it in America. And he's like, well, I don't know if manufacturing is going to come back like it was before, but we want it to be in countries like Mexico, or we want it to be in countries like a Vietnam or, or the or Philippines, Canada, countries, or, or Canada, or some allies. Latin, Amer- exactly, trusted allies. He's in Eastern European countries, because, yeah. again, you can't rely on the Chinese government. And this kind of goes to that point about Huawei, why Huawei was such a big deal. And I think I heard you on the communicators on C-SPAN talking about it, and basically saying, you don't want the Chinese government listening in on everything you're doing because it's cheaper, it's, you know, and, and scooping up data. And we know they've been caught red-handed, um, stealing <laughs> incredible amounts of yep, stealing incredible amounts of intellectual property. I mean, there's a reason right. they shut down the consulate in Houston. They were stealing intellectual property related to vaccines. I'm told. So, uh, right. You know, I mean, it, they're they're at it every day, twenty four seven. Why would we want to facilitate an easier access to our data networks? And so that's part of it. And you know, that gets into the whole choice that voters will make. You know, in a few weeks at the election, right. Bernie Sanders used to be the one beating the drum on China and outsourcing manufacturing jobs to China, and China being a bad actor and a currency manipulator. And guess what? Donald Trump got elected and said, China's currency manipulator, they cheat and steal, and we've become too reliant on them and done everything basically that the left said needed to be done to China and more. And all you have to do is look at the prior eight years under Obama. You know, they had the reset with Russia. They just didn't push back on China on anything and, and sent, you know, a plane load of cash to Iran. I mean, it's bizarre. And that's what we're going to put back in. I mean, seriously. I guess that's the question I have, because uh, you're right, whenever I would, t- this is funny. And this is probably in around 2017 or 2018. I'd run into Bernie Sanders yeah. in the Senate halls. And he's he I mean, I'm not kidding. Whenever you run into Bernie Sanders, if there are people in the halls, they applaud. And I kid you not, it was it was pretty entertaining. But I'd say, okay, so the president's done this, that, and the other about right. Chinese, you know, it'd be like Chinese right. currency or what he goes, Bar- Bernie Sanders couldn't really say terrible. <laughs> he, he, he would say, well, it's good that he did right, something, right. <laughs> but it's not, it's not exactly the way I would have done it, but you, he was kind of stuck. But it's a huge admission for him huge to have to admission. say he's never going to embrace, right? But to even acknowledge, I think, tells you, and, you know, I wasn't a big tariff guy. I right. never thought that was a great idea. So I'll tell you what, president's right. use of them has affected change and, and, and cleaned up behavior. You think about it. He renegotiated NAFTA. And everybody said, oh, that was going to end trade with our, with our closest partners. The whole world was right. going to come unstitched. Well, he did it. They signed it. We have a better agreement today uh, and a more, more level uh, trading uh, arena. And so, I mean, there's a lot that's been done. But, yeah, no, the risks out there are extraordinary on cyber. And, and just one more, one more point on China and rural broadband. I think I was listening to Ro Khanna on one of the podcasts, um, talking to you. I think it was not not First Amendment, podcast, not Article though, One, Article One, or Article One, Article One. As he was talking about the threat China poses, essentially, in that China, and I, I forget the the term that they use. It's like five and twenty five or something. But China is making this major push to essentially connect the entire country with rural broadband, and they're doing yeah. it. Yeah, and and we aren't. 
And and Rokwana's well, point was that was that there's there's large pockets of this country yeah. that don't have access. Like I was talking to Abigail Spanberger, and her people in her district are really hurting because people in the rural areas they don't have that access to broadband, and their kids have to learn from home, and they're working from home. And so, yeah. I I think that's one of the uh, one of the many many uh, lessons learned for the rest of the country during COVID is that there are. 20 million plus Americans that don't have access to high-speed broadband. And that's not just rural. Uh, you find it in urban areas. That's Part right. of it's, you know, some of it, by the way, people literally don't want it, don't sign up, and they get counted. But I'm going to discount that part because the part I care about are the people in my district that don't have access to anything. Now, it, it's hard. I've got counties where there's one person for every nine miles of power line. Oh, is this where the cowboy with the satellite phone is? Well, no, that's that's down in Harney County, but it's probably close to that. Um, I think Harney County has about eight thousand people, and it's bigger than most states east of Mississippi. So, wait a second, I'm just thinking about this: one person for every nine miles. Yeah, county has seventeen hundred people in it, or probably less than that now. Wow! But it, my my point is, in some, this is why we need better mapping to figure out who's covered and who's not. And that's so that we can take the limited resources that ratepayers pay into the funds that government then spends or taxpayers pay in that we allocate and put that where we can actually get this connectivity for people that don't have it today. Because that's where you're going to need the support. Then 5G build out, which, you know, I helped pass the legislation that really made spectrum available and we're continuing to try and get more mid-band spectrum available. Okay, but before you go on, can you explain to like a layman like me, what exactly is 5G? Does it just mean my cell phone is going to have better coverage or yeah. what is it? Yeah, it is. Why is it, a why is it a national security threat though? Why does the Defense Department care about how it's implemented? Well, let me, let me start with what it is. So if you think about you had 1G, then 2G, then 3G, then 4G, then LTE, and the next technology is called 5G. And I'm going to just leave alone what that means and all that because I don't know that I actually know what it stands for, and I don't really care. What I do know <laughs> is that by using new frequencies, mid-band they call it, with coupled with other, other spectrum, they can get more data into your phone quicker than you can today by upwards of 100 times. So, and it won't matter how many people are around me. Now, here's the deal. Using it. Here, or what? As Ross Perot used to say, here's the deal. So I love here's the deal. Here's the deal. The deal is this spectrum doesn't go as far, but it puts more data through. Oh, so you have to have a lot more cell sites. So you have to have a lot more antennas. Oh, you have to have more because it doesn't go as far. It's just the wave propagation characteristics that the signal doesn't go as far. But boy, does it carry a wallop where it does go. So now we have to have more and more cell sites. They're 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 smaller, but you have to have more of them. And, and so that's part of what's being built out. You'll see all over as this builds out on light poles and sides of buildings and all, just lots of little cell sites out there. I think I see cell towers that look like fake trees. I see cell towers that are trying to camouflage. Yeah, and they're, <laughs> some are better than others. But but if, uh, you know, basically some of the, some of the uh, uh, antennas now aren't much bigger than this. Think of a, a cookie sheet. Think of a cookie sheet, probably. That's probably bigger than some of them. It all has to do with 
wave propagation depending upon the spectrum you're on. It's like the, the higher the, the spectrum, the shorter the antenna, ah. um, the smaller. And so that's why an AM radio tower is so tall. Right. Right. Uh-huh. Okay. That's, that's, that's part of it's a, it's a, anyway, and an FM is much smaller and sits on top of the tower. And, and you right? get better coverage so, with FM. Yeah, you do. Although that it's limited. Right. I mean, you can pick up an AM station if it hits the, the, the heavy side layer of the ionosphere. <laughs> uh, the wave propagation is such depending upon night or day. You can have our 1,000-watt AM station we used to own three miles from here. We had people that could pick up that signal certain times of the year in Scandinavia. There's a whole group of these folks that do this for fun, for sport. They try and find signals, but that's at night. You'd never get that with FM because it's more line of sight as opposed to bouncing off the ionosphere. Oh. So... And, and listen, we, we can trust you because your father owned like, what was it, five stations in... Well, he owned two, we owned five, and he and I are both ham radio operators, although he's gone now, but um, yeah. So. I understand this a little bit better. So 5G, and you were talking about the 5G bill that you passed, you know, that the House is able to pass, right? Uh, no, well, as part of the Ray Bombs Act, um, when we reauthorized and modernized the FCC and in other legislation... We opened up government spectrum, and you'll recall broadcasters had to move their signals, their their transmitters to different frequencies. Part of that broadcast channel for television got auctioned off then. And companies such as T-Mobile and Sprint and AT&T bought that spectrum. That has great propagation characteristics to work on for 5G. So they're now using that and building out. So that's part of one of these lessons learned, these these areas that we need to be able to be better in as we move forward. And when you're talking about the lessons learned from COVID, do you think that the House and the Senate and, and eventually either Trump or Biden will have the, the willingness to cut deals and actually make some of this stuff law? You know, most of, most of what we work on, um, you can negotiate through to a good place. Now, the system is not set up to be rapid response. It really isn't. And that's probably good. Um, in some respects, it makes you work harder to get it right. Um, but a lot of it you can work through. 5G spectrum, it's complicated technically, but it's not really a political issue. Um, there are other issues that are partisan and political from the get-go, and they're really hard. Tax policy, I'd say, is one of those. Do you cut taxes or raise taxes? Biden wants to raise them. Trump wants to cut them. Boy, there's a philosophical gulf deeper than the Grand Canyon. Right. And so that one you just kind of <laughs> have crater to muscle. Lake. Or crater lake. But that one you have to just kind of muscle through. But a lot of these things on telecommunication have been bipartisan and will be. But it was 20 or 30 years since we'd last reauthorized the FCC. Uh, we got that done in the Ray Bombs Act and passed. Um, when I was chairman of the committee, but people said it couldn't be done because, oh, that opens the whole communications code and then people want to do everything, you know, they've ever wanted to do and it'll just be a mess. Well, we were able to keep it focused and, and built a coalition around it. And got it done. Okay. Now I'm going to ask you kind of a wonky question, but one that I always want to ask former chairman and people, what's your favorite parliamentary tool? Is it like a point of order? As chairman? As, as Well, not as chairman, as ranking member, because I've seen some point of orders and some parliamentary inquiries and, and whatnot. Which one's the most effective to, if you're in the minority, say, protecting your rights? Well, there, there are a couple. There aren't many. 
so you know there there are little techniques if you want to there there's a lot of the work that gets done in a committee that if you're not paying attention you don't realize is done through unanimous consent the chairman says without objection i move that we do x y and z the clerk will read the bill mr chairman i reserve the right to object that stops everything okay and then i can speak on my reservation um and i can force them to have a vote uh, because what the chair, the chairperson is basically saying is unless somebody objects, right. um, by unanimous consent, I'm going to go do these things. And so if you're, if you're having a bad day in the minority, you can object. So that's a good one. It takes a unanimous consent to dispense with reading of the bill. That, that means a clerk actually physically reads the bill. Right. And when we were doing our healthcare reform bill, big, when the Democrats obviously didn't like that. And they made us read the bill. Oh, that's right. The irony of that was it took hours to read the bill. And I always thought politically it was not the brightest idea because we were live on all the networks when we kicked off. And once we had our really talented clerks reading the bill, the viewership, I think, began to decline and the networks cut away. <laughs> if I had been them, I would have had the nastiest amendments ready to go, the most politically sensitive ones, and make us debate and vote on those right. while everybody's tuned in. But instead, they got, you know, various clerks reading the bill, and that was the end of that. And so I think they missed a real opportunity. So you got to be strategic when you do things. And Republicans, in covering you guys, is in the minority. But I mean, because I've covered you in the yeah, minority and the right. majority, like two times. And there have been some really clever motions to recommit. I, I, I got to tell you, those, you know, the one time that the minority party has to amend on the floor, quote unquote, on the floor, a bill, and you guys can pretty much put in whatever you want. And, and a lot of times those motions to recommit or that those like amendments have to do, obviously they have to do with the bill, but sort of a lightning rod issue like immigration or something that really right. puts members of the majority party in a tough spot. The individuals who are representing purple districts or um, or even just depending on uh, when it comes to immigration, where your district is, is located. What, what have been some of your favorite motions to recommit? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know specific ones, but, but I do know over the years, there have been some, some good, Good motions. As a chairman, you had to think through when you brought a bill to the floor uh -huh. what opportunities you were you were giving the minority to do exactly that to your members. Right. So, in other words, you try to write the bills as narrowly focused as possible, uh -huh. so that the parliamentarians can go, "Yeah, Molly, great idea on that motion to recommit, but it just doesn't fit this bill." And and where where the majority has difficulty. And this was one of the issues with reauthorizing uh, the Federal Communications Commission because basically you were opening the door to anything related to the Communications Act. Well, man, that's a panoply of things. And But we got it done in a bipartisan way. So I'm sure they had a motion to recommit. Minorities always do, but it wasn't. We had the deal done. We had the bill. I mean, everybody was okay on the bill. But uh, yeah, there have been there have been some pretty good ones over the years, but I haven't kept track of them. And I'll tell you that when you're in the majority, your leadership always says you just vote, you, you, you vote with us. You never yield on that issue. These are throwaway votes and, you know, by the minority. When you're in the minority, you say, 
we're going to stick them this time and we're going to use it against them. And by the way, the attacks I've had on me, and I've had a lot in 22 years, uh-huh. a bunch of them have been because I voted no on motions to recommit the Democrats have put up. So each side, it's it's sad because each side's positioning the other as opposed to trying to, and, and maybe if you had more opportunity to amend on the floor uh, on, on bills, you'd have, uh, you'd have, you'd, you'd relieve that, but I don't think so. I think they, you know. I don't know. Well, well, I have to say, I've covered Democrats in the minority as well, and their motion to recommit have not, not been. Not as good. No, they have not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they have not uh, suspense. I remember like running up to the chamber to like see who's going to vote on this motion to recommit. The House, you do. You have these legislative tools. I mean, these parliamentary tools. And if used effectively, um, they can really not as I don't know if they can necessarily change the course of the outcome of the bill. But maybe they can. They do. Maybe they do. Or maybe they can. Every once in a while. Every once in a while. And so it's important to pay attention to. And these issues that you're dealing with impact the entire country. It's not just the people back home. And and so so just to get to understand how Congress works and to make it more sort of relatable and understandable is important. You guys have a tough job. I wouldn't want to have to fly back and what was it? 642 round trip. And you're a tall guy. So, I mean, like, three, on the West Coast. And, and, and three three-hour time zones each week, each time. My district's two time zones. Well, I've got one county in mountain time. But, yeah, it's three it's three hours time zone change. So, and with COVID, there's no direct flight to Portland now. Oh, my so gosh. So, I have to fly to Seattle, wait an hour or so, then get to Portland about 1030 at night, then drive myself home here to Hood River, which is fundamentally about an hour and a half once you get off the plane. So I arrive here now at midnight, which is 3 a.m. brain time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I think if... And do it every week. If more people understood kind of what members of Congress really are doing and trying to do, maybe they would be a little bit more understanding and or forgivable, or maybe they would be, people would be a little bit more constructive in the criticism and able to speak with your offices more constructively. Yeah. And in the meantime, then, when, as you pointed out earlier, when you're on the ground out in the district, then you're I, town halls, you're out talking to people, your casework. I mean, we help thousands and thousands of people right. uh, over the years with everything, Social Security, Medicare, VA, and, and everything in between. You know, I, I can't tell you the, the times I, I was out. My wife and I were actually on vacation, one of the rare times in our pickup and camper driving somewhere in the phone lit up on the dashboard and I answered it and it was a friend of mine who was at the airport to fly overseas with his teenage daughter and her passport was expired. Could I help? Oh my gosh. And we tried. I mean, it's like, I don't know. It's a Saturday. Let me see um, <laughs> what we can do. And, and I called my staff and we got on it. In the end, she was young enough. They let her go without a passport. But we've had same thing, couples getting married and forgot to get the, you know, the visa or this, that or the other thing. People adopting kids and needing help getting them back. And I mean, we've done some pretty amazing work trying to get people who have died overseas, get the the body home. This die and they can't get the the social security, whatever it is, or, um, you know, veterans having issues with disability. I mean, half of our case works veterans. And, and why should you have to go to your member of Congress to get what you were promised? I, I would say that the administration's done a marvelous job trying to clean up the, the VA 
but it is so antiquated and so, uh, I don't know, cumbersome. We still probably have our case where it's VA. I don't hear about the depth of problems. Um, the, the problems don't seem as severe as they were, um, I'll say six years ago, maybe eight. I mean, it, they cleaned up a lot of the, the real serious stuff, I think, where people just couldn't get access to care and all. I don't hear that a lot anymore. It's more just the paperwork stuff. And why you can't do all that online yourself, I, I skip the bureaucrats, I don't know. Some of it you can do online, but also if you don't have access to... High-speed broadband. There you go. Computer. There you go, computers. But the point I was going to make is I'll bet every congressional office has one or two people, I've got two, who do nothing but help veterans get what they were promised. But that tells me we've got a systemic problem we need to go fix. Oh, that's a question I'm going to ask people when I talk to them. Because you shouldn't have to have two staff people in every congressional office. I have two veterans that do this almost full time. Wow. And we're honored to do it. I don't ever mean, I mean, that's our job. We are happy to do it. Exactly. It's just, gosh, by the time they, they're frustrated enough to figure out to call my office, I mean, for heaven's sakes, how did we get to this point? How did we get to, the, why is it, why do they have to call this as so exactly. much in the first place? Is that, I see the point you're taking. How has, how has your caseload changed since COVID and the PPP and the EIP and getting help with the IRS? I was listening to an oversight hearing with the IRS commissioner. And I got to tell you, it's a mess. Yeah, we've had a little bit of that. Where we got flooded was the, the failure of the state of Oregon to be able to get the unemployment insurance bump up process. It's been a disaster. I'll, I'll clean up what I really want to say, especially given that we sent the state of Oregon, I think, $85 million close to a decade ago to upgrade the unemployment insurance computer system, which the Democrats control everything here now for a long time. They finally got around maybe six months a year ago to saying, okay, we have a plan to do that now. But what happened with all that money in the meantime? It's sitting in a, in a pot. They've spent a couple million trying to design the system and all. And never, never affected any change. So they had all this money and they, they just didn't, they didn't use it or. Exactly. Oh, don't get me started. I will start saying things I will regret because I'm so angry about it. Um, they had the federal money. It was for this purpose. And so as a result, we, half of our caseload this year has been unemployment claims, all of which is a state of Oregon issue. And they can't get through. They can't talk to anybody. The governor says, Oh, not my fault and fired the employment department director and brought in somebody new. And I mean, it hasn't got, it's improved slightly. But they've got an old system. Yeah, if you don't have the technology, it's not like you can come in immediately and... That's right. I never want to be the person following the guy who was fired because of poor performance. I don't want to be the next person unless I have the backing and the resources and the time to make the changes happen. This is like infrastructure. Absolutely. And so remember we said you could waive the eligibility requirements for that first week. Right. They couldn't figure out how to do that in Oregon. So... People weren't getting that. And the four, the $600 a week bump up, eventually they figured people were furious. We still have, I, I don't know, I have to dig up the report for this week, but it has been almost, it, it went from nothing to half of our calls in casework. It was nothing wow. but unemployment benefit claims. And they were so mad because they couldn't talk to anybody at the state. Right. The governor was just a disaster on it. 
I mean, it's just, seriously, these people have lost everything. You can't figure out how to do what you're hired to do, which is process unemployment claims. Why don't you hire some of the people who've lost their jobs to come in and process unemployment claims? Well, and then the, one of the, one of the newspapers did a sort of investigative reporting piece and interviewed people in one of the call centers who said, I don't know, we're sitting around playing games on our phones and things waiting for, you know, and they were complaining. They weren't, they, they were just saying, I, I don't know, we're sitting here. They haven't told us what to do. Yeah. I mean, just total management disaster. That's too bad. And, and that actually brings me to another question. As a federal lawmaker, how do you interact with the statewide officials and state government? So it, it, a little bit. It depends on the governor. I've actually served with this governor in the legislature. I've known her for a long time. We have a decent relationship. Um, and during this period, you know, there was some communication, but working more with her, her you know, agency directors, mm-hmm. the head of the Oregon Health Authority. And then what I did for my district was put together, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, very regular conference calls with all the state legislators, okay. all the county commissioners, the CEOs of the hospitals, um, you know, on down the, the list. Some of those were multiple times a week trying to figure out what do you need? How can I get something? Because our committee has, you know, jurisdiction over so much of what right. is COVID related. With NIH and, and, you know, strategic national stockpile and CDC. And, you know, we've got all of that. So at least I, I figured my, my principal goal was to figure out what they needed and then try and get it for them. And, and as importantly, get them answers to their questions that are factual and, and all of that. And then get the feedback to me about what's working and not. So, and I used to be on a hospital board and, you know, I've been involved in healthcare issues my whole career in public service. Well, it seems like there hasn't been a lot of, and this is just the perception, a lot of factual information out there. We, you know, this is a crisis. Coronavirus is just, it's a pandemic. But, you know, you're hearing sort of the administration say one thing and reading reports and seeing, you know, emails exchanged, revealing other, how has the administration, do you think, handled this virus? Does there need to be a more unified and cohesive message in terms of national testing? Well, I mean, is that unfair criticism or unfair criticism of the administration? I, I think it's unfair for this reason. Having lived through all these briefings, the whole, the whole period of the pandemic, there were things that we thought would happen because that's what's happened in prior coronaviruses and other other sort of, of things that didn't happen. You know, originally, there was high skepticism about whether asymptomatic people, people who show no signs, could transmit this to somebody else. And in fact, if memory serves me right, some of the early intelligence out of China and WHO said, no, asymptomatic people can't transmit it back and forth. Well, we now know that's not the case, right? We also believed, but even Dr. Fauci always caveated it. I don't know if that's a word, but put a caveat on it, that these, these viruses tend to die off in the summer. And we would know by watching what was happening in South America first. And, you know, and so, and then we would go into our summer and lo and behold, there's a reason they call these a novel coronavirus. It's new. They're novel, they're new, and this one didn't die off in the summer. And so what, what I've witnessed is something the administration said back in January, February, March is compared to what we know in August or September. 
Well, great. I can make that call too. I'd tell you what we did right and wrong. You know, I mean, it's just total BS to do that, to take what we knew at the time back here and then apply what we know now and say, see how stupid they were. Well, I can do that across all night long and win every bet. Um, and, and part of it was trying to figure out, you know, we thought we would have access to supply to PPE. The strategic national stockpile was never designed to be the Home Depot of everything you possibly needed, right? Even Walmart couldn't keep up. The food shelves were bare. Right. You know, every, there was a, there was a rush on. I, I love somebody said, you know, if, if you needed that much toilet paper before the pandemic that you need now, maybe you've got another issue, right? But all of a sudden you couldn't get toilet paper. Yeah, exactly. You need to go see your gastroenterologist if you need that That's much right. toilet paper. <laughs> well, and, and it just stretched the system to, to a breaking point. And, and so, yeah, we, and, and we now know, you know, what we thought we would need. And this, remember the strategic national stockpile uh, really was designed to deal with biological, chemical, and nuclear attack. And so what do you do? And so that's, that houses sort of the antidotes for some of that stuff that has no commercial purpose. And, and then we discovered that, that it hadn't been replenished coming out of the last administration with some of these other items. And it was never designed to be the warehouse for every mask and gown and all. It was designed you could take a pallet, send it to Houston because something happened there. A pallet goes to Denver and, you know, a plane lifts off and doctors and they got everything they need to deal with an outbreak of X. Right. Well, this showed up. President shut down access from China, got criticized for it, began to lock things down. We've never done this before. Never. What about this, the, the issue of the president not wearing a mask? And I'm, I'm, I mean, I personally think, okay, yeah. I, listen, I'm sort of like Jim, when I heard Jim Mattis, and this is a, just a comparison, he was asked one time, you know, well, do you believe in climate change and doing all these things to save the climate? And, and Jim Mattis is like, well, I kind of look at it like insurance. You have to get insurance for a car. Yeah. You know, you may need to use it. You may not need to use it, but you might as well err on the safe side. And perhaps that's the way with masks. I don't know if it's going to protect me entirely, but if it, it can't hurt. Well, I'll tell you, when we went to reauthorize the, the strategic national stockpile to deal with and, and the pan, what we reauthorized, Susan Brooks led this effort, the Pandemic All Hazard Preparedness Act. Okay, that when I was chairman of the committee, we got it. It got held up in the Senate. Uh, we had change of control. It, you know, it ended at that Congress. And then we came back basically under Chairman Pallone, took the same bill, moved it forward, and became law. But in the course of those briefings and reading up on pandemics and hazardous threats and all, I, I actually learned about something called an N95 mask. You know, they do expire. They do. But I went online and I bought three of them three years ago, because or two years ago, because I thought, well, you know, that's probably a good thing to have around and so I have one for my wife and one for my son and one for me in a little package. And then all of a sudden we have this pandemic and the issue of masks comes out. And I go, hey, look at what I have here. And they're the good ones with the N95 filters and all. Now, look, here's the deal. Uh, masks, I, I think you should wear them. I wear them. <laughs> I think in the end, we're all going to wear more of them, even after this is behind us, because we're all pretty sensitive now about, hey, who, why are you sitting that close? And Oh, I hate it. Why don't you have that mask? And I'm not a, you know, I wear it. I think people should wear them. Um, you know, the thing about with the president, and I've traveled with him, you know, this tells you how vicious this virus is. 
you don't get anywhere close to the president if you hadn't been tested for coronavirus. But here's the question about the tests. They're not necessarily the most reliable. They're not 100%. Especially the quick ones, the fast ones. Yeah, yeah. But they're pretty good. And okay. people are getting tested all the time. Um, and, and that's another issue is we need to do more testing. But we were constricted. Remember, the president's the one that invoked the Defense Production Act to get swabs made at the facility in Puritan, Maine, and put $75 million. I flew up there with him and, and, and all this know, summer, I guess, because they were building it out and doing all that. Turns out there were two swab manufacturers in the world, Puritan, Maine, and the other one, Italy, the heart of the COVID outbreak. Remember, all commercial flights are shut down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So President sent military transport planes to Italy to acquire as many of those swabs as we could for testing capabilities. Again, we didn't know we were going to need all these swabs. We didn't know we were going to, I mean, we didn't even have a test. We didn't even know what the D, I mean, you, you think about, we go from a, a disease, a virus nobody's ever heard of in January, early, early February, somewhere in there to getting, I think it was the 10th of January, something like that. We got the, the RNA code, the DNA code from China. It was in sometime in May the 28th. I don't remember the day. But we got the code for the virus. Then they had to figure out how to test it, what to do to test it, what it took. One of the reagents they used was, was, did not work, right? So they had to bring it back, go, go forward. That probably cost us a week or two, which is not good, but it is what it is. That was the CDC, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, and then from there, you had to, all of a sudden, everybody wants tested. Well, then we discover there's one swab manufacturer. You know, I mean, it's just, Supply chain vulnerabilities. And this is what we have to figure out going forward. But the optics of the president not wearing a mask sort of detracts the message from all the stuff that, that this administration has done, including, we don't even need to get into it, but Operation Warp Speed is incredible given like all, oh, I mean, I can't even imagine. It's like the most kind of like, look at what the federal government can do when it puts its mind to it and right. it's by. But it, when the president doesn't wear a mask, People are talking about that and sort of like, oh, he's a denier, yeah. as opposed to this, to everything that was done in a DPA. So I, that's kind of why I ask about it, you know, because then you have your Republican candidates spending off questions about, you know, healthcare, as opposed to saying, look at what we have been able to do, given what we didn't know. Yeah. And I, you know, it's again, part of what you know and don't know. And looking back, I, I often thought... Can you imagine if he'd embraced that and branded that, <laughs> you know, exactly. Trump mask, it would have been the best mask ever. Oh my gosh. Um, I like, you see the, at the, at the rallies, the MAGA. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I think uh, he, he missed a branding opportunity there. maybe. Right. Well, anyway, I, I will let you go. I know that you probably won't be able to answer this, but what do you think you're going to be doing when you leave Congress? I don't know yet. Um, I, I, I'll stay active, but I don't have anything lined up. Okay. Um, I'll stay active. I, I, I think I would drive myself and my, my wife of 38 years uh, uh, over the edge. Uh, <laughs> after about a month, I'd have the garage finally cleaned and, you know, all my honeydews done. And then I go, now what do I do? That's I've it. always been that way. And so I'll, I'll do something, but I don't know what it is. Oregon's home. It's nice to be out here. And, uh, you know. Well, now that your buddy Pete Sessions might be heading back. You're leaving. I was just down with Pete down in uh, Waco, Texas, and Dallas the first of the week. I went down and did some events with him. 
with masks. With masks. And he's running around with a with a squirt bottle that says eighty percent alcohol, <laughs> squirting everybody's hand. <laughs> you know, Pete. Oh, okay. yes, yes. So, did did you see not, Chip yeah. and Joanna Gaines? No, aren't they in Waco? You know, of the, of HGTV celebrity. No, and somebody said that we should go buy them. Magnolia, yeah. Um, but and are your your boys still friends? I know that they were friends. Yeah, yeah, you have good memory. Yeah, yeah. Anthony and, and Bill are very good friends. Bill was he's in uh, he's mar- Bill's married, uh-huh. and uh, both he and his wife are residents uh, in uh, in South Carolina. They both graduated medical school. They're both residents. And oh my gosh, I know the age. I know. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, oh wow, so smart. Anyway, well. Thank you, thank you, thank you for talking to me. It's good to see you. Yeah, it's fun. It's good to see you this way, too. And I'm so excited that people can hear Mr. Walden, Chairman Walden, Ranking Member Walden, <laughs> former NRCC there, chairman. <laughs> Mr. There you go, your one rating. I, listen, the, the, amount, the number of people who've been wanting to find out who members of Congress are and what they really do, even if those people just listen in and share with a friend... It, I think it might do some good in the world of news and understanding. So how do you edit all this down in an hour and 15 minutes? That's a great question. Well, you know what? I don't edit it down because it's a podcast. So in fact, the longer, the better, because people will listen to the, I mean, I listen to podcasts that are like an hour and a half and it's just conversations. Yeah. And that's almost the point, but it's like, it's like C-SPAN, but with personality and getting into person, more yeah. personal sort of stuff, you know? Right. And, and it makes it, you know, so people can see who understand who you are and, and that you're not just, you know, a, reserving the right to object. <laughs> 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 so on that, I, I reserve the right to revise and extend my remarks. There you go. I think I'll do that, too. <laughs> thank you. Hey, Have a good, good to see you. Take and care. I'll thank Molly. Nice to see you, too. That was Greg Walden of Oregon's second district. A big thank you to Molly Jenkins for setting up the interview. Thank you so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can write to me at article1podcast at gmail.com. My Twitter handle is at Molly Hooper. On the next episode, I talk with House Rules Committee Chairman Jim McGovern. He shares entertaining stories of legislating through the years and ways he's learned to be most effective for his Massachusetts district. Until then... I reserve the right to revise and extend my remarks.